This idea of purpose is, has always been seen as quite fluffy and nebulous. It's sort of something which is nice to do, but not realistic if we've got quarterly earnings targets. And I think that would be the, the case of 10 or even five years ago. But now there's increasing research showing that this is something where in the long term it, it pays off. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. One of the goals of the Freewheeling Podcast is to bring fresh voices and perspectives into the world of transport. It's in that spirit that I introduce my guest this week, Professor of Finance at London Business School, Alex Edmonds. In a world that can often seem neatly divided into left and right, Alex has written extensively on why capitalism is the best way to grow the pie for everyone, but how companies cannot succeed without a wider sense of social purpose. He raises important questions for any sector, but none more so than the world of transport, with our endless intertwining of public service and private delivery, what's the role of capitalism, what's the role of private shareholders. Well, today, hopefully, we'll get some answers. Alex, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Thanks, Thomas. It's great to be here. So before we get going, just tell me, how did you get interested in in these questions of corporate and social purpose? I think it's because I was interested in personal purpose to begin with, right? So when you think about what career to to, to do, you often think about uh, financial rewards or extrinsic rewards. When I left university, I went to Morgan Stanley, just like anybody else who studied economics did. Uh, But then I thought, well, let me go into academics. So I left Morgan Stanley after two years to do a PhD. Why? Because I really, really liked teaching. Despite the financial rewards and investment banking, I chose myself to go into uh, academics and be a professor because that would be something that would motivate me. And then perhaps as a consequence of doing what I loved, maybe I would become more successful than if I went into banking because I was just not as passionate at banking as other people. I wouldn't have worked as hard and therefore I would not have have made it in the way uh, in which my colleagues did. And so I thought, well, will that also approach, that approach also apply to, to companies, right? What sometimes people teach as a finance professor is companies should explicitly pursue profit. What you learn in the start of business school, you set up a spreadsheet, calculate the impact of your decisions on profit, and if it's positive, you take it. But maybe there's a different way. If you run a business with a sense of purpose, solving a social problem, then that might actually lead you to making other decisions, which ultimately become more profitable, but you could have never forecast the profit increase from the outset. And so I wanted to see, well, could that be a driver of corporate success in the same way that personal purpose could be a driver of individual success? And does it? Well, I think it does. So, so this is one of the big things, is you might think anyone who speaks about purpose, um, this is wishful thinking, it's too good to be true. So this is why my goal as a finance professor is to look at do companies that serve wider society, do they deliver higher long-term returns? And in many cases, they do. So one of my own studies looks at 28 years of data at companies that treat their employees well and finds that those companies beat their peers by 23 to 3.8% per year over a 28-year period, that's 89 to 184%. Now, the big elephant in the room is, is this correlation or is it causation? Is it if you treat workers well, then the company does better? Or is it once the company's doing well, then you can spend more on your employees? And so my methodology suggests it's the first, it's treating employees well 
indeed leads to better profits. And there's other dimensions of purpose that you might think of. So maybe in other industries, it's not treating employees well, but other dimensions such as climate change and so on. But in many of those cases, as long as the stakeholder that you care about is material to the business, you end up becoming more profitable in the long term. And you, in one sense, you could say, well, isn't that kind of obvious? Because if you want to make profits, you are going to have to treat your people well or they won't do what you tell them. So you need to be nice and they'll help you make more profits. So is, is profit versus purpose a distinction or is purpose simply another way of articulating the need for profit? Yeah, you make a good point. And I think the important thing here is, is the difference between what I call an instrumental approach and an intrinsic approach. So what do I mean by an instrumental approach? Let's say all you care about is making money. You're absolutely right. You would still invest in your employees, right? Because if I don't treat them well, they're going to leave. If I don't train them, they're not going to be as skilled. So I'm still going to invest in them. But when I invest in them, I'm going to do an instrumental calculation, right? How much more money will I make? And how much um, will that um, offset the costs of, of investing? Now, you can do that for investing in a machine or a factory, we can calculate the number of widgets that will come out and how much we can sell that for. But when we have something intangible, such as employees, it's much harder to do that calculation. So purpose instead has this intrinsic idea. Well, I'm going to invest in my employees because I think it's the right thing to do. I want to build a business where my employees are seen as partners and that will lead us to making some investments that ultimately do become profitable but we could have never foreseen the profit um, at the time that we made the decision. So it still is a way of making profit. We're seeing profit as a byproduct rather than something which is pursued directly because given it's so difficult to forecast the impact of profits, if we have this, this instrumental approach, many good decisions would not be taken. So basically, if you want to get profits, the best thing to do is to stop thinking about profits exclusively. And to simply think about yeah. something so, something wider. How, how do companies in that case, how do they control anything? Because you know, there's always going to be a, an exception that proves the rule. And you, you, the, the poster boy, I imagine, for the, for the opposing case to the one you're articulating would be WeWork, which certainly had a sense of purpose and found it incredibly hard to find a way to, to making profits. And its founder didn't seem particularly bothered by that. So if, you, if you're not going to be focused on profits, and I get the logic, how do you then ensure that the profits eventually show up? Yeah, this is a really critical question. I think this is something which a lot of people sweep under the carpet. So it's really good that you brought this up. So there is this argument that, oh, companies should completely ignore profits, just think about purpose, and then always the profits will manifest. But when I go to the research, actually only certain dimensions of purpose end up in long-term profits. And that's the idea of materiality that I briefly alluded to earlier. So let me go into this in a, in a little bit more, more detail. So what this means is there's loads of different stakeholders that a company can serve. There's employees, customers, uh, the environment, maybe government and, and tax and so on. And the goal of a company is not to be all things to all people. And that's really important because when we think about a purposeful company, we use the word purposeful as a synonym for altruistic, right? We serve everyone. But if you think about the word purpose, right, it means focused and being targeted, right? A purposeful meeting has a clear agenda. If I do think something on purpose, I do it deliberately. And so a personal company thinks about, yes, there's all of these different stakeholders out here, but which are the ones that are most important to me? So let's say we're a financial institution. We might think, ah, oh, maybe um, 
given Mr. Floyd's um, killing, we should make these big public statements about diversity and donate loads of money to, to, to Black Lives Matter. Or we might think, well, as a financial institution, the most important thing for me is to make sure we are being extremely transparent in terms of our products. We're not going to be in a fake bank account scandal or missell payment protection insurance. So what are the dimensions that we are going to be focusing on? So it's not your responsibility to solve all of the world's problems, but to focus on the particular dimensions that you can move the needle most. If we go back to the analogy to personal purpose, nobody would have a purpose to be a doctor and a lawyer and a teacher and entrepreneur, right? You choose to do one of those things and do those th- do that one thing really, really well. Well, certainly that answers the WeWork question. One of the quotes I found most remarkable was, I, I, I believe it's a genuine quote from the founder of WeWork, who said that the reason he wanted to achieve a high valuation for WeWork, and it got absolutely crazy, was because it would prevent future wars because with his high valuation, he'd be able to mediate between different nations, which probably goes to the point of trying to solve more of the world's problems than is necessary for an office provider. I didn't know that. That's a fantastic quote. I'm actually taking note of that um, because that will be one I, I, I want to use in the future uh, for, for why you shouldn't solve certain problems. It is awe-inspiring. Yeah, look it up. So you, you talk then about the need to, to, to decide which purpose is your purpose and then really care about that. And you talked about different stakeholders and one of those stakeholders was government. And I find these questions really interesting in the world of transport because there's a department for transport. There's very few areas of business where an entire government agency exists simply to make decisions as to what they want the outcomes to be you know there's no there's no department of sandwiches or department of clothing or department for almost any other sector of retail but there is for transport and so in that context how, how do you think that managers in transport to think around the question of purpose when the people we vote for have appointed their own people to think about what they want the answers to be yeah, so I think, and obviously you know the sector much better than me. So if I'm speaking sort of out of line, please do do rein me in. You. But I think while there is a while there is a, a department, that department more sets the rules of the game and sets it really tightly. But it's the role for individuals, such as your startup, to think innovatively within the rules of the game. So they want to regulate the rules, but they're not actually playing the game. And so I think there's a huge um, amount of 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 um, of, of scope for, for individual companies to create a lot of value. And I think a lot of the value is is innovation. So often when people think about what is, does it mean to be a purposeful company, it's one that splits the pie more fairly, right? We've got a fixed pie, make sure that enough of this goes to employees or, or um, taxpayers and so on, and not too much to investors. But actually, what are some of the most purposeful things that you can do is to grow the pie with some innovation and think about new ways in which to to, to use use coaches, for example, and to make sure that there's um, the, the, the capacity is, is full. And that's something that you're, you're obviously doing. And that's something where a government would not be able to do necessarily themselves because they're good at setting rules, but not to the same degree of, of, of innovation and being responsive to market demand. And so I I don't quite know, I really don't know what the right role for government in, in for example, transport is. And lots of different countries and lots of different places have different approaches to it. And you know, the, the French approach is very different to the British approach, which is very different to the American approach. But one all of them have a, a role for government in some way. So within within our country, for example, you know, if you look at the aviation market, it's entirely private, it's liberalized, there's been massive growth. You know, Ryanair, probably one of the the, the best examples of the growing the pie mentality you can possibly imagine. And at the other extreme, you have, say, the London Underground, which is 
an entirely nationalized monopoly. And you, know, you couldn't conceivably imagine um, trying to dig multiple tunnels under London to try and create some kind of market for, for tube travel. And then there's a whole spectrum of different providers and types of service in the middle. So if we assume that probably we've got those two extremes right, how on earth do we think about all of the gray area in the middle and, and what the role for government is and what the role for private investment and shareholders is? Yeah, so I think the role for the government is to set the rules of the game. And so what does that mean is that um, to allow market forces to work well where they're taking externalities into account. So if so, what are externalities? Those are things that don't affect the company's profits, even in the very long run. So this might be something such as the impact that you have on the environment. So if we think of one of the big negative externalities of transport is um, climate, then just make sure that the carbon tax correctly um, reflects the social cost of carbon emissions. If we think that there's also some um, issues uh, such as uh, noise pollution or um, something with, with trains is that with the potential for, unfortunately, danger or people to commit suicide on, on trains, then obviously the government needs um, needs to, to, to put in some um, um, safety there. But I think then within that, the government should then allow companies to um, compete uh, within that framework. And, and if it is indeed that we that, that there are new ideas which uh, come up with such a snap, then um, the government should allow that to happen. And so that could be through helping in terms of financing. And I think that's something which we, we want, not just in the transport sector, but in terms of all small businesses. If indeed it is difficult for small businesses to get financing due to information asymmetry, is that there's something that the government promotes with something such as the, um, um, the British Business Bank, for example. Are there any markets that you look at and say, oh, actually, that's an example of where this relationship between government, purpose and capitalism are, are, are working really well and generating really good outcomes for society? Hmm. So I think that um, the asset management industry is, is getting quite a lot better. So why is why do I think that's such an important industry? It's because historically, who were the shareholders of companies? They were only very, very wealthy people. And this led to just um, increasing um, inequality. But nowadays, what, what people have tried to encourage is... Um, people's capitalism. So I know this was, will be a very controversial topic with many people, but the privatization of the utilities, right, that you can argue for or against. But one of the reasons for that was it gets the culture of share ownership within people. And so this means that um, when they think about their, their their options of saving, it's not just going to be within a cash ISA, they're thinking about investing within um, individual companies. And what has um, increased a lot recently is just access towards pooled vehicles such as index funds. So in the past, you had depolarization, where if you had, say, um, the Fidelity Network, they could only sell Fidelity funds to you. But now you can buy any fund under Fidelity Network, and it's the same if you go into a, a high street bank. Why Lloyd's bought, bought Scottish Widows is that at the time, you could only sell the products that you own. So Lloyd's could only sell Widows products, but now they can sell everything. So I think that has allowed people access to, to, to um, equity markets. Those fees have now gone down, so people are now able to invest in index funds for something which is which is very little. Still, there's there's ways to go, and this is why now the government is trying to make these fees particularly more transparent. Right, you've got 
asset management fees for the fund manager. You've got platform fees. Those are being separated. And the greater the transparency they can have, that will improve um, the workings of that sector. But that's something where I have seen now there's much greater culture of equity ownership among ordinary people rather than just the elites as it might have been a couple of decades ago. No, that's really interesting. So let's look at some examples of actual bus train transport companies in, in, in this country. You're a manager in one of these industries. You, you, you At the moment, you probably feel like you're only purpose in life is to deliver contracts to government if you've got contracts with, with government for, say, running a rail franchise um, and to satisfy your shareholders who will typically be big city companies. Um, how would you advise someone who is running one of these businesses to think differently as a result of some of the research that you've done? I think it's to think about, so what is the purpose of um, transport companies more, more, more generally is that an efficient transport system has a huge effect on, on, on the economy and on society. It connects people to jobs. It connects people to um, uh, their friends and family. It allows people to, let's say, live outside of London and um, close to communities yet still um, commute in. And so I think even if you don't change the way that you actually do your business, that is something which can be just hugely motivating for, for employees because employees, if they go about their daily tasks, they might think, well, all I'm doing is just doing a spreadsheet or I'm just doing some routine thing. But if they think, well, the general purpose that we have here is part of um, having a, a big transport network and what this does in terms of the economy, that is something which I think in and of itself can be good in terms of motivation. So we, you might know this famous painting where you have, I think it's three people who are doing the same task. One of them says, I am laying bricks. Another says, I'm building a church. And another says, I'm building the house of God. And this, apologies for the religious metaphor here, but you can just look at the same job in many cases and you can think of, well, there's a higher purpose behind that. So just to say, well, this is the role that transport plays within the ecosystem is a really positive one. So why is it that if you're a middle manager trying to make sure that there's some efficiencies or some improvements in scheduling, well, that actually leads to a huge benefit in terms of, of um, wider society. Um, but separately, it might also lead you to making some other changes that um, you might not have done to your business had you just focused on profit. And that might be increasing just um, running routes which are, were not otherwise profitable to begin with. Why well, do we think that our purpose is to provide important transport links? And it might be that some companies will do that even in the absence of a government subsidy. So let's say the government is not subsidising you, you might think, well, this is just an important route to run just because of some social needs. And it might be that initially that's not profitable, but unexpectedly by running that route, then that might actually lead to developments of like new businesses um, in one of the destination areas. And then the route becomes profitable in, in the long term. Just like in some cases, um, companies might give pharmaceuticals away for free, even if the um, recipients are not able to pay, pay for this. This might be Merck giving away ivermectin. And then later on, it might be that they're, that they're through developing the economy, then they are able to, to pay um, for, for the drug. So sometimes in those cases, even if something is not profitable from the outset if it's consistent with purpose it often finds a way of becoming profitable later and so i can i can imagine some of my listeners right now and they'll be saying it's easy for you to say that alex and yeah there's undoubtedly parts of the network that we theoretically could run that at the moment aren't profitable to run and often we don't run them and as a result 
government has to step in with a socially necessary service, which is less integrated and often less good quality. That, you know, but we have quarterly targets we have to hit. You know, we we are in a peer, there's a peer group of, of of big transport PLCs, and if we don't hit those targets, then our share price will go down. The other guy's share price will go up, and we'll be punished for it. So, it, it, nice idea. We can't do it. Yeah, I would say actually that's not the case because if you if you look at the evidence, right, we typically like to think about the market being really short term and um, capital markets only focusing on quarterly profits. That was probably the case 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Right. And so that would be a valid challenge. But let's look at sort of some of the most valuable companies that we have right now make losses like Tesla or make um, low earnings, which are nothing compared to the valuations. And so what we actually have seen is like investors, and that's the constituency that I work most with, are looking at things far beyond quarterly earnings. Why? Not because they're about saving the dolphins. They want to make money, but they realize that shareholder value is a long-term concept, that what matters for a company is the long-term present value of all their future cash flows. Um, and, and so there are cases in which, let's say on the downside, we had Ford. They hit record profits in 2015 and 2016, yet the stock price plummeted because investors thought, well, you're not investing enough in self-driving cars and electric cars. And that fall in the stock price led to Mark Fields, the CEO, losing his job. And on the other side, look at, say, Unilever. So they invested a lot in the sustainable living plan. And that's something which is not immediately profitable. It involves a lot of investment. Then there was a takeover bid by Kraft a couple of years ago. Normally, what happens in a takeover situation is the company gets on its knees to its shareholders and says, do not sell in this situation, right? We're being undervalued. Here, the company didn't need to do anything. It was that the shareholders, which came out and publicly defended Unilever and said, look, we know that the value of Unilever is not in its current share price. It's in its sustainable living plan. And this is something which is going to be paying dividends in the future. So I'd say like, if a company is going to do things which are not going to be immediately profitable in the short term, then you would want to disclose that to your shareholders, say why you're doing it, have other metrics to which are going to gauge on whether they are successful rather than you just doing something pie in the sky, a bit like Adam Neumann of, of WeWork, and then, but, but then just um, hold yourself accountable for that. But say, this is what the value of our company is, and this is why we think it's going to be good in the long term. Yes, we're going to look at this route. This route is not quite profitable now, but actually we think um, that if we were to run this route, then maybe be, there's going to be a lot of new business formation in one of these um, areas, and therefore the route is going to be profitable later. And so on a kind of aggregate scale at the size of a large company, if you articulate your purpose clearly, and that purpose isn't purely about profitability, but you've got a, a vision for how you can make your sector, your space bigger, better, more exciting, that can potentially create the space to allow those profits to follow in future. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is something which would sound wishful thinking, which is why, again, I want to back it up with evidence and data. So there's studies which look at what happens to a company's stock price when they meet when they miss their quarterly earnings targets. And actually, the ones which are performing well in their social dimensions, they suffer much less when they don't hit their quarterly earnings targets. Why? Because the investors who have bought into this company knows that the value of the company is far beyond whether they've hit the, the, the quarterly figures. Um, there's another study which looks at what um, 
what's known as CEO investor forums, which are um, public meetings between CEOs and investors, where unlike the annual general meeting, which is often about financial performance, they all disclose specific plans that they will have about purpose, and the stock price goes up when they communicate that if these are specific actions. One recent example, it wasn't in one of these investor forums, but it was just a, a public release, was when... Um, was it a BP announced its transition plan towards net zero and then the stock price went up on, on the day that it announced it, even though you might think, well, shareholders will think, well, why are they investing in this? They should focus on trying to harvest as much as they can from the existing oil and gas reserves. Are there any examples of the opposite where you've seen companies that haven't thought about purpose sufficiently and a company that, you know, it, it, it might be nominally successful, but actually it's the lack of purposeful thinking that's caused it future challenge? Yeah, I think if this is an easy answer for me because I have hindsight, but but like if you think about Wells Fargo, so that was one which is always driven by hitting targets and hitting targets irrespective of whether it was going to serve wider society. So um, the former CEO had this um, policy where staff in the bank had to sell eight products had a target of selling eight products to every customer so the customer comes in wanting a bank account but you're going to sell all of these different types of insurance and so on and why did he come up with the number eight because it rhymed with great right so he had this he had this program called go for great which is gr hyphen e-i-g-h-t so this was not based on any research showing that eight products were needed to improve customer welfare he just had this idea of a, a target driven culture and so this led to employees hitting targets and they hit targets just by having these um these uh, fake uh, bank accounts and we see something like this in lehman brothers where they had a lot of a very heavy target scheme even valiant pharmacy in the US that was purely hitting targets through acquisitions and leverage rather than organic innovation and investment. So there are many cases in which the direct profit or the direct pursuit of profit actually paradoxically leads to less profit in the long term, going back to what we said right at the start of this, this, in, this um, discussion, which is actually we see profit as being a byproduct of doing something well, then actually more profit might come out at the end. Right? How did Steve Jobs end up so successful? It probably it wasn't that he said, oh, let me try and be the first company to be worth a trillion dollars and rubbing his hands every day thinking about how can I get my valuation to be one trillion? But instead, I think he thought about, well, how can we push the boundaries of innovation and design and be relentlessly committed to having a really well-designed and sleek product? And as a byproduct, um, Apple became really successful. I've got one final question I'd like to ask. I'm just interested about the point that government's role is to set the rules for the game, the private sector's role is to innovate. Um, some of the most innovative companies have also been ones that have, have pushed against those rules. So, for example, Uber um, has gained a real reputation for ignoring the rules um, and for drive. You know, in, in London, it's been it's been banned, not banned, banned, not banned. Uh, what? How, how do you deal with a company that sense of purpose? goes against the rules, but they believe they're, achieve they're absolutely achieving their core purpose. Yeah, so again, my, my view of Uber might be controversial here, um, but I, I'm not sure to what extent they were breaking the rules so 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 what 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 i don't know the regulation of this this this, this sector as, as well but i thought that the rules were that you could only apply for hire if you had a taxi license but here they were not on the street um picking up um 
picking up passengers, it was fully within the rules of the game to say, well, let's do be like a minicab service, but one where um, rather than booking on the phone, you can just book it with, with with an app. Now, if indeed regulations come in and say you need to vet your drivers very carefully and they're not doing that and they're not giving background checks and that is breaking the rules but i don't think innovating and, and, and having this idea of having an app which allows you to book um transport was breaking the rules it was not illegal at, at, at the time and i wonder to what extent um the initial um sort of tfl ruling against them was partly driven by political concerns to try to protect the black car industry which does make a lot of monopoly profits for for people uh, with with licenses so if indeed their rules come in and say yes you need to be vetting your drivers they need to do that but i don't think the initial innovation was was breaking those rules so basically your your summary would be you can get as close as you can to the rules but if you're getting if you're if you're you're getting close to rules or stretching the rules be sure you're doing it for the right reasons because it's about achieving a wider purpose which you i think uber clear what their purpose was, as opposed to, for example, the banks in the financial crisis, where they were getting as close to or stretching the rules for the wrong reason. It was it was contrary to what should have been their core purpose. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way of, of putting it. So, so if indeed you think, well, the reason for Uber to, to exist is to make something that was historically a luxury good, the idea of booking a taxi, that was a luxury that only wealthy people could, or, could offer. If indeed they're saying, well, let's allow make this affordable um, to, 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 to um, general people. And also think about em- employees. I know Uber has said as being zero hours contracts. I will nearly always talk to my Uber driver as to why they did do this job. They typically were an Addison and they didn't have flexibility of the hours. And it says, well, if we want to, to give some flexibility um, to people who are doing this while setting up their own business or looking after family, then we can offer that. It's for those reasons, whereas with the banks, often this regulation um, was, uh, often they, they just saw this as being a rule where we want to take as much as possible while staying the, the correct side. And that was something quite different. There they were doing it for their own profits rather than to serve wider society, be this customers or employees. Well, that covers everything I want to talk about. Is there anything else that I should have asked and haven't? Um. I don't think so. I think if I just said to go back to um, what I hope to be a, a theme of uh, this this chat, if I want to summarise everything in um, the trees for the forest, is that this idea of purpose is, has always been seen as quite fluffy and nebulous. It's sort of something which is nice to do, but not realistic if we've got quarterly earnings targets. And I think that would be the, the case if, like, if 10 or even five years ago. But now there's increasing research showing that this is something where in the long term it, it pays off. So it might seem surprising that I, as a finance professor, am speaking on this topic rather than a professor of philosophy or business ethics. Right? Finance is often the enemy of purpose because they're saying we need to hit the quarterly numbers. But actually, based on evidence showing that this is something that leads to profitability in the long term, it is something which I think a lot of companies are taking more seriously. And importantly, investors. So I talk mostly to the investor community, and they indeed are not just evaluating a company on its short-term profits, but the extent to which it's serving wider society, solving a social need, and giving employees a, a healthy, enriching workplace. And indeed, one of the main motivators for employees is, is the company making its money in a way which is serving wider society and doing things such as operating a transport route, which is not profitable right now, but has some big social benefit, might be something which is a big motivator for employees. So all of these things do come together 
given that investors are really caring about it, employees are caring about it, customers will often base their purchasing decisions on purpose. This is why people care about things such as organic farming, they might delete Uber, they might boycott Volkswagen. All of these confluences of different things means that I think it's it's critical that CEOs think about it themselves. I can hear the voices already of people saying this would never work, we couldn't do it. Um, you're saying you've spoken to the investors and actually finance directors or CEOs who are fearful of becoming more explicit about purpose, about doing things that cost money or lose money because of purpose, they're actually fearing the shadows of investors, not the real investors, because if they spoke to their investors about it, their investors would say, as long as you're absolutely focused on that purpose, and you're clear what the purpose is, we'd back you on that. Yeah, so so if you asked me this in 2007, that was when I started as a professor at Wharton, the first um, risk, uh, socially responsible investment conference I went to, the investors there, if I was to mention the names to you, right, those, um, you would not have heard of, of, of those names. But what's really changed now is how responsible investment has become mainstream. So actually, a couple of hours ago, I gave a, a talk at responsible investing to one of the, I can't mention the name, but one of the most major uh, investors in, in the globe, actually. And so this is something where even if you're not running a sustainable fund, a standard fund, you care about purpose. Why not out of charity? Because you know it's linked to long-term returns. I serve on the Responsible Investment Advisory Committee for Royal London Asset Management. We have five sustainable funds. Who attends our meetings? It's not just the head of sustainable investment and the head of responsible investment. Our chief investment officer attends our meetings, even though he's responsible for every fund, the vast majority of which are not sustainable funds, but he knows these are things which actually do affect long-term value. So even without an explicit sustainability mandate, we want to think about a, a company's purpose. And I think the final thing is just, again, to, to highlight the caveat that you just mentioned, Thomas, is that purpose is often about knowing what not to do. So purpose doesn't mean being uncommercial. A purposeful company does need to stop particular actions, right? If indeed there is a societal action which is not linked to your comparative advantage or materiality, it's not something that you need to do. Um, if I think of, say, Airbnb, what did they do in the pandemic? They made 25% of their employees redundant. I thought that was extremely purposeful, right? Why? Because if indeed the travel sector is going to be permanently downsizing afterwards, we need to take tough decisions because if we don't, then the company is going to go under. Now, we're going to take that tough decision in a purposeful way. So this is why they gave them 14 weeks of severance pay and um, a year's health insurance. But purposeful does not mean not taking tough decisions. It means knowing, well, what you're going to be focusing on and doing that really well. And that might involve downsizing and, and, and stopping other things. So what I want to do is to really dispel the myth of purpose being meaning not being commercial. Let me actually just ask one very vital question uh, about the question of, of government and um, private companies in, in my world of transport. And the fact that if companies are thinking more explicitly in the way that you describe, um, I can imagine that could make that relationship easier. Because I think in the past, there's always been an assumption that let's imagine, for example, you're a, a government body contracting with a private company, an assumption on both sides that the private company's job is to make as much money out of the contract as possible. And therefore, the government's job is to set the rules so tightly as to avoid that being possible. Um, and you can end up with a slightly adversarial and, and contract bound relationship. If a company is thinking in a more explicitly purposeful way, does that make it easier for the public sector and the private sector to collaborate with each other? 
It does, and also one uh, one other advantage of it is that it 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 um hinders and preempts regulation which might otherwise be more stringent so if there are particular sectors which say they've which are becoming say unpopular then it's in your interest to reform yourself and and think about purpose because if you don't then companies will be um, much so then the government will be much more stringent in terms of regulation so this is why some people like were a little bit cynical about the business roundtable statement um last um sorry two, two years ago about serving wider society um thinking well this might be something which is going to preempt regulation but actually it's sensible because if indeed companies are taking seriously some of their large societal impacts that will preempt some regulation saying well let's give 10% of every company to a worker foundation and something like that. So sometimes governments have to come in to respond to really bad failures. But if um, industries are able to self-regulate, then that actually reduces the amount of government invention that needs to do. And then similarly, if then the government thinks, well, the company cares about wider society, not just making money, then we can actually see these as people to collaborate with rather than the enemy that we need to be restraining. Which is your favourite ever company? I would say Merck as it was a great company because what they did was they were really driven by innovation and it was always linked to their core purpose of prioritizing human health. So um, in uh, 1978, um, one of their scientists uh, thought um, ivermectin, which is a drug that was uh, treating um, parasites and livestock, could be used to treat uh, river blindness in humans. Now, river blindness was suffered by people in Africa and Latin America. Well, you shouldn't care about that if you wanted to make money. You should care about dermatology products to be sold to uh, the UK and the US. But they thought, no, let's develop this just because we think river blindness is a big problem. And they did. It took them nine years before they managed to get it approved for human use. And then they couldn't um, get any money to um, sell it because those countries still had problems. They couldn't get um, the aid department. So they just started to give it away for free. And that's something which created a huge amount of social value. But it ultimately also benefited Merck because it attracted a lot of investors and employees to them. And indeed, while we can't court prove that this was a cause of it, in the intervening couple of decades, their returns have been 50% higher than the broader S&P 500. So this was being driven by what is the social problem that we can solve? Is it linked to our core purpose and comparative advantage? If it is, let's find a way of solving the problem and later let's find a way of monetizing it afterwards. Fantastic. What a great example to end in the middle of a pandemic. Alex Everman, thank you so much for joining me for the Free Reading Podcast. Thanks so much, Thomas. It was great to be here. Well, that concludes the Freewheeling podcast this week. I'll be back next week, but in the meantime, thank you to Alex Edmonds for taking part, and thank you to you for listening. If you're enjoying the Freewheeling podcast, do go on to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, and if you've got any feedback for me, I would love to hear it. My email address is thomas at thomasableman.com, and I can be found at the social channels at Thomas Abelman. Tell me who you'd like me to be talking to, and if there's anything else you'd like to get from the Freewheeling podcast. See you next week. Bye.